Hey friends, welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be here with you today. The music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Drew Holcomb. We are finishing up getting to hear his stuff every week. I'm so, so grateful for him. And that new album, Dragons, make sure you have a copy. Today on the show is one of my dear, dear friends, someone I respect so much. Jeremy Courtney is in charge of Preemptive Love. You've probably heard of it, doing relief work all across the Middle East. His new book, Love Anyways, is just, it's excellent. And I think you're going to love it and you are going to enjoy today's conversation. So here is my good friend, Jeremy Courtney. We just jumped into um, a quick Instagram live because I wanted to, I wanted people to kind of hear from you today firsthand of what's going on in Syria. But tell me the bigger story, I guess, here of, this is a loaded question. Are you ready? Why is the Middle East so complicated? Ooh. Why are any of us so complicated? Well, I mean, like this isn't happening at the border between Scotland and England. Not this century. Oh, that's a good point. But it did. Yeah, you're right. Um, so when empires fall and new realities try to emerge, it's messy. Birth is messy. Yeah. And death is messy. And that's essentially what we're still living through, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the lines that were drawn in the sand at the end of World War I. Uh-huh. You know, a couple decades of colonialism that took place after that. If you look throughout the Middle East in kind of the 20th century, you get a number of places across North Africa and the Middle East where we helped support strong men Mm -hmm. who led for 20, 30, 40 years. And now we're kind of just coming out of that era and a whole new more democratic, more informed thing is trying to emerge. Mm -hmm. So big buckets, you've got Ottoman Empire. Then coming out of that, you've got kind of a colonial, occupational sort of propping up the strong man. And is this like 1800s? Uh, So end of Ottoman Empire is like kind of moving into World War I and then end of World War I. So coming out of World War I, a lot of lines are drawn in the sand that essentially divides up the land that used to be the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So then you draw, you get the creation in this, you know, this 10, 20 year period, you get the creation of modern Turkey, modern Iraq, um, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, you know, broadly speaking in that time mm-hmm. frame, these countries emerge that used to be, broadly speaking, just part of the Ottoman kind of Turkic Empire. So almost like when USSR became, mm-hmm. stopped being the USSR and yep. became Russia and all these other yep. countries. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that we, one of the terms that we've used about that, we talk about the balkanization of... Balkanization. Like, that's a term that yeah. that we use in various metaphors around the world. We talk about to balkanize is, is to kind of to divide up into smaller constituent parts and then sort of be against one another. Uh At some point in history, there was no such thing as a Syrian national identity. There was no such thing as an Iraqi national identity. Well, there was no such thing as an American national identity. These things had to be created. And we're only 100 years on 
from the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Which was the grand... I mean, literally right at 100 years. Yeah. yeah. Which was the grand, for a while, for, for centuries, it was the Islamic Empire. It was sort of the... Uh, the counterpart to Christendom or to the Byzantine mm. empire, you, then it moved into more of an Islamic sort of era. And then that falls apart at World War I. And so all these little national identities are coming out of that. And we're still, we're still dealing with the after effects of it. You're, you see it all over the world, really, where for all kinds of complicated reasons, the first or second move out of empire was a new kind of colonialism. You have a president or you have a king or you have a, a, a prime minister who's largely aided and abetted by the Western powers who rules for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. And then now in this wave of democracy, democratization, U.S. interventionism, internet, the Arab Spring largely represents this move to say, we don't want these 30-year, three-decade dictators right, anymore. Right. We, we want The people want to rule, but the old ways die hard, and the yeah. powers that be die hard. And, and it's easy to forget that was only 100 years ago, right? Like, as an Annie, when I'm watching this, yeah. I'm going like, yeah, but Saddam Hussein, like, that's whose name comes to my mind. or Who ruled for 30 years. Right, which is... Insane. And he was only two generations probably from the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And I just, I think I under consider recent history. I either think about Israel <laughs> and Bible times, yeah. or I think about the 90s. Yeah. I don't, I, when I'm learning about all this and paying attention to it, I'm not thinking back far enough or too far. That's a great point. Where, you come out on a lot of these issues depends on where you start the story. Mm. Um, you better say that. That is truth. You know, if if you start the story and then without talking about what happened first, yeah, it, it changes the whole meaning of the story. So then you get this group or that group appears to be the aggressor. All you have to do is just lop off the first part of the story mm. where someone else hit first. Yes. It's never as simple as right and wrong. It's yeah. just complicated to live with our identities alongside one another when we fear that the other group's coming for us, mm. the other group's coming to get us, or there's not going to be enough to go around. And I think that largely sums up all of our conflicts around yeah. the world. Yeah. Uh, this is an uneducated question, but I may not be the only one who has it, hopefully. Um, but I just think I would love for, one thing I've heard you teach on and talk about before that I... Why does all this matter to us as Americans? The majority of my listeners are Americans. Mm. And it's not just, I mean, I know we don't want to get bombed again, or we don't want to get our planes hijacked again. I know there's safety for us in it. Why else does this conflict matter to us as Americans, but also as people of faith? Wow, it's a great question. I think um, there's a lot of reasons why it matters and or, you know, we might say should matter. Yeah, that's fine. So all those self-interested reasons that you listed are, are legitimate. I do think there are national security concerns here. So is that? Do you feel that with what's happening with Syria? Oh, 100 percent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so so as we're recording this today, we're about a week into a Turkish invasion of northeastern Syria, which 
is kind of a friendly, light way of saying Turkey just started a new war. Mm -hmm. And as of this minute, 160 some thousand people displaced, um, bombings from the sky, driving people, Kurdish people out of their homes predominantly. And all the stages set for ISIS to reemerge in a powerful way, not just an incidental way, not just a kind of small way, a powerful take over massive land genocidal way. And what ISIS has shown us once or twice is that when they control land and when they have safe haven, they are able to turn out amazing propaganda, Mm -hmm. embark on huge recruitment campaigns that gins up and stokes fear across Europe, across Australia, across the United States, and inspire all manner of terror attacks Mm -hmm. in those locations. Lone wolf guys can kill tens, twenties of people anywhere in the world when ISIS has some safe haven to do what ISIS does really well on the internet and in the real world. So I do think that from a strictly self-interested national security concern, Australia, Europe, United States, Canada, anything that's sort of largely regarded as a Western or Christian society, which is how a lot of ISIS would frame it up, should be concerned about the reconstitution of ISIS. That's one reason. Other reasons are, are maybe more nuanced and more complicated, but a lot of this, I think America is the victim of our own marketing. So we've promised the world, we've told a great story over the last 60, 70 years about American democracy, American freedom, how we exist to bring freedom to the world and we're the, we're the lighthouse of freedom and democracy and human rights. And a lot of people have come to actually believe that about us and expect that of us. Yeah, right. And so a lot of what you see in the fallout of the, uh, the American invasion of Iraq, the Iraq war in t- 2003, is I think Iraqis actually thought we were going to bring freedom and human rights and big economic boon after Saddam. And it didn't happen or it didn't happen quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And it was very messy to the degree that it did happen. And so then we saw a backlash against American troops because we were not able to bring them freedom on the level that we promised quickly enough. We need to get our branding right. I mean, honestly, if we're going to keep banging our chest and touting our values and signaling to the world that we are the, the bringers of freedom or the standard of freedom, then people will expect us to live up to that. Right. And it's hard to get a brand right when you change CEOs every four years or every eight oh, years. Oh, sure. Right. And so there's, I think part of what is at issue here That's is- really interesting, Jeremy. Is an American- branding problem uh-huh. and a vision problem. We don't all share the same vision and our administrations don't share the same vision and we are constantly in flux. And it, it seems like arguably over the last eight to 16 years, we were really kind of at odds with ourselves about who we aim to be, who mm-hmm. we mean to be in the world. But then we still set ourselves up as we will help you to everyone else. Yeah, through one mechanism or another. Yeah. And, and the mechanisms are part of what we're debating. Should we, mm-hmm. should we help through military interventionism? Should we help through engagement with the UN? Should we reject and pull out of the UN and NATO and other institutional 
coalitions around the world, we can't seem to decide. Yeah. And, and part of why we can't decide is because we are now so polarized that the messenger matters as much as the message. Mm. You, you get someone like Obama enacting, President Obama enacting a certain policy, and it flies under the radar, and then you get President Trump enacting a not altogether different policy, similar policy, and it gets excoriated. The messenger means a lot to us right now. Yeah. And, and not for nothing. I mean, those two guys are of very different value sets and very different right. character. So we're not just debating policy. We're not just debating vision. We're, we're debating character. Mm-hmm. And, and now that character embodied by one man is being attributed to one party, is being attributed to one part of culture. Right. You know? So now if right. you align with the man, then you are, for the last 12 years or so, aligning with the man made it easy for entire swaths of American culture to be branded as immoral or unpatriotic right. or whatever. And, and so I, I don't remember what you asked, but these are deeply I asked why, why it matters for us, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it would just, um, my guess is, the difference between your job and my job is my guess is that this is your every day, is thinking of these people and thinking of these conflicts. And so it just must feel heavy every day. It feels important every day, for sure. Yeah, it does feel heavy. You know, as an organization, Preemptive Love, we exist to end war. And... That's not like it's not primarily about disarmament. It's not primarily about signing treaties. It's not primarily about meeting with policymakers, though you know we we've participated in all that. When we work to end war, we see it primarily as a a human to human type reality, a mm-hmm. community to community reality. How how do we see each other? How do we see ourselves? What are the stories we tell about each other? And and what are the common futures that we're reaching for. And so that that feels heavy, yes, but it also feels full of promise and opportunity yeah. to try and bring people to the table. So when Turkey and Syria start a new war, I mean, I guess Syria is not starting a war. I guess they're just being, do they have an army to fight back? Syria does. And, you know, Syria itself has been in a civil war right. for eight years, which means there are different factions inside Syria that are fighting each other. Part of what is happening in Syria right now over the last 48 hours is two factions that are at odds with one another Mm -hmm. inside Syria. The Kurds and the Assad government are now making a pact to fight against Turkey. I mean, just a few days ago, they would have been at odds with one another. Uh Kind of a ceasefire stalemate sort of thing. we got (laughs) to... But but not, not cooperative. Right. And now they are coming together to fight against Syria, uh, excuse me, now Syria and the Kurds, Syrian government and the Kurdish sort of enclave are coming together to fight against a foreign invading right. force, the Turkish government, Turkish military. I'm looking at a map, by yeah. the way, while we're talking. Because, so Aleppo, people talk a lot about Aleppo. Yeah. And that is right there on the border of Turkey and Syria. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a little far south. It's a Syrian government-held major, major city, major historical city, huge trade route on the Silk Road from centuries uh, that was under ISIS-type control Mm -hmm. for years. 
and was, you know, was sort of fell back into government control in December 2016. So it's been reemerging as an open economic hub, not at war for almost three years now. Turkey is making no avowed kind of play on Aleppo, but just north of Aleppo, we start to get into the conflict zone mm. of what Turkey aims to, to what they would say liberate, free of Kurdish control. Because the, Got it. I know these are a lot of words, no, I'm a learning. lot of groups to throw around, but the Turkish government considers all Kurds, more or less, terrorists. And so what they... Are they? No. Okay. All of no group is ever a terrorist. Well, that's a good point. You know, there are Kurds who have engaged in terrorism. There are Kurdish terror groups that have existed. You know, in their storytelling, they would say we're freedom fighters. They would say we're just trying to liberate our people from. It's the same thing, Jeremy. It's the same. It's who's telling the story, yeah. and where did you let the story start? That's determining war. Now there are that's things. Insane. There are things that truly constitute terrorism, and I don't think we should gloss over those. When, right. when a Kurdish group blows up a bus of civilians in Turkey, that's terrorism. That's terrorism, yes. And it should be condemned as such. But guilt by association is not the same thing as being guilty. Right. And so part of what Turkey does is they, the, the government and those news stations that support them, they tell stories about Kurds in such a way to help make the whole country believe that to be Kurdish is to be a terrorist. Mm. Um, to be Which Kurdish, is kind of what happened here with Muslim, yeah. with our Muslim friends for a while, where it was like, if you're Muslim, you're probably ISIS, and you're just hiding. Yeah. Okay. So this is a version of that that happens in Turkey and Syria. Yeah. Wow. Why does Syria matter this much? When Jordan's there, when Israel's there, where you live in Iraq, that, I mean, there's a huge, I'm looking at a map just so everybody knows, I don't know this in my heart. There's a huge border between Iraq and Syria. I mean, that takes up the whole northwestern border of the country you live in. Yeah. Why is Syria this important? Well, Syria is important for so many reasons, not least of which because there's humans there. Yes, 100%. And yes. I mean, I can talk about all the geopolitical, but it just seems hugely important to me to keep bringing us all back to the fact that these are our brothers and sisters yes. and cousins and yes. Neighbors. They are real families. These are our neighbors. Yes. Uh, sometimes we we use more narrow definitions of neighbors. Yeah. But it's important to me to say these are our neighbors. Yeah. And they exist and they're real and they hurt and they have dreams. And when bombs fall on their head or snipers kill them or tanks roll over them, they die and their kids die and we never get them back. And then the way their parents... And their community leaders go on to tell the stories about those deaths helps determine whether we end up in cycles of violence and war or whether we can find our way to get free mm. and get back to one another. Geopolitically, Syria matters because it is a major, major foothold for Russia in the Middle East, and it is a major, major ally of Iran in the Middle East. And... While I also want to speak humanely about Russian people and Iranian people, and I do understand the global aspirations of the Russian government mm -hmm. and the Iranian government, uh, I, I think there is serious cause for concern 
about Russia's geopolitical games in the world and Iran's geopolitical games in the world and Syria's. And so there's sort of a an alliance here between Russia, Syria, and Iran that is very much at issue. So one of the big winners of the White House pulling troops out, U.S. troops out, is that Russia just effectively kicked the U.S. out of Syria without firing a shot at us uh-huh. um, or without any apparent official negotiation on the matter. So right. non-interventionism has some merits to be sure, which is part of Trump's overarching value that he claims he wants. He doesn't want America globetrotting around the world trying to police the planet. And there's some value that's not altogether wrong by any stretch. I've, I've lived through what I think is a, an overreaching of American military interventionism. We thought we could go into all these countries and overthrow dictators and whatever else. And it has not worked out all together well mm-hmm. for the world. So I think Trump is seizing upon something, President Trump seizing upon something that that has merit and is worth considering. But again, we've built a brand on freedom and democracy and values and human life and human rights, whether it's true or not, whether it's contestable or not. Right. There are people who take us at our word and they are screaming out, where in God's name are you? Yeah. You said you stood for freedom and now you're abandoning us and letting NATO bombs fall on our head. What is humanity? What is NATO? What are alliances? What is friendship? Yeah, because it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, there would be a group of uh, Westerners, politically or whatever, that would say Syria is on the other team. So we are okay, not okay with them being bombed, but, but we aren't for them anyway. And yet what you would say and what preemptive love would say is they are all humans and these people are still being displaced and they are still our neighbors and they are not all terrorists. Yeah. And we, as an organization and as a family, we have a history of running toward the violence and serving people not uh, ignorantly, but indiscriminately Mm. nonetheless. Like we... We know that we might be serving or we know that we will be serving ISIS supporters. But if ISIS supporters are running for their lives, we figure there's no better way, no better chance to hope to transform their ideas from hate into ideas of welcome, hospitality, understanding, love, than to confront them with our shared humanity. Yeah, does that, that is complicated though. (laughs) To like you were saying on our Instagram live, that there are times where y'all are, you know, you're actively serving wives of ISIS members because they are in need. Is that dangerous for y'all? Yeah, for sure it is. Um, one of the camps that we work in in northeastern Syria is called Al Hol Camp, and this is a notorious sort of the final gathering place for all the last, last, last holdouts of the ISIS fighters. So the very last patch of land, uh, you know, that was, that was considered ISIS territory, we now help serve the wives of all those ISIS fighters and their children for various reasons. Some of those women didn't know that what they were getting into. Some of them got duped. They got kidnapped. They got lured. Some of them fully know what they're a part of and are full-blown, hardy ISIS supporters. But in every case, 
their kids right. were born into this reality and are going to be raised in this reality, raised under this ideology, unless someone steps in to try and break the cycle. So we've been offering sort of OBGYN services and other kind of child services, medical services in this camp in an effort, in a hope that one of our sort of internal mantras that we challenge each other with is, can we be a people who go where no one else will go to love the people no one else will love? Yeah. And this just presented itself as one of those obvious opportunities that it's not a it's not a slam dunk. It's not guaranteed that we get the outcomes we're hoping for. But what is guaranteed is that if we just leave these people in an open air prison to be raised under ISIS ideology, then we are literally growing up the next wave of fighters right. under our watch without any concern for what that means for them, for our neighbors, or for ourselves. The only way is through engagement. The only way is through engagement. Non-interventionism at at its most extreme is not going to get us where we need to go. Mm -hmm. Engagement, relationship is going to get us where we need to go. But it, we're not naive to the fact that that may very well cost us our lives. Right. That's the problem. Are there other people that are helping ISIS families that are in camps like that? Uh, broadly speaking, yes. But I would, I would dare say the way we do it, no. Yeah. It's one thing to just throw a mess of food at people and treat them begrudgingly as prisoners that were tasked to house. That's not what we do. Yeah. To draw near, to look deep into the eyes of, to seek to understand without denying atrocities that have been committed, without whitewashing, to forgive, you know, where, the, where there is repentance, where there is an awakening or a realization, but without denying the, the pain and the atrocities that have been caused, that's, that's how we work. Mm. And it's harder, it's more complicated, but it's the only way I know that would actually transform. How'd you even think of that? What was in you and your team that went like, okay, we know there's a camp over there and it's mostly ISIS fighter, fighter holdouts and they're mm. hungry and they're in need and they don't have what they need, we should go, like. Yeah, because we, we think holistic, I mean, we've lived through enough of these cycles of violence. So I've lived in Iraq for nearly 13 years. And myself, I feel like I was weaponized into this war on terror, so to speak, after 9-11. Mm. Yeah, I, do you wanna tell that story? Well, I, I, was, I was ripe cultural material to be <laughs> mobilized and activated yeah. into into an us versus them yeah. sort of self-righteous patriotic war. So the United States gets attacked on 9-11 mm -hmm. and I'm a, a young, eager, willing enough white evangelical in the South where my sense of manhood was at stake. Oh, wow. My nationalism and patriotism was at issue. And I didn't grab a gun and become a soldier and, and head out to war that way. But I, I, I believe I was weaponized just the same as a Christian huh. missionary. Really? And so I set out into the world to protect America from the Muslims, to save America from the Muslims, to save myself and to save the Muslims. Uh huh. And I would have never 
said it at the time, I would have fought and denied it vehemently. But now looking back... Well, you probably didn't even have that language. No, then. not at all. No. Not at all. But looking back from where I am now, I, I believe that I was, I was activated. I was weaponized. By the church? By... I think it's too simple to say by the church because I don't because the church doesn't exist or let me say it this way the church culture that I was a part of didn't exist independent of the state. Mm. It existed in harmony with the state, in partnership right. with the state, the, the the nation state. Yeah. The flag. And that's true in a lot of countries where I travel. The yeah. mosque in Turkey, so to speak, Islam in Turkey is wedded to the Turkish flag. Islam in the Kurdish part of Iraq is wedded to the Kurdish flag. Islam in the Shia part of Iraq is is complicatedly wedded to either Iraqi flag or the Iranian flag. So, wow. Uh, and do the Kurds in Iraq are they the same as the Kurds in Syria? In a way, yes. Eth- ethnically, they would all identify as Kurds, but. They are of different tribes. They are of different dialects. In some ah, cases, they, okay. they literally cannot even speak to each other. So like it would be like um, Native American tribes maybe where they would all be Native Americans, but they all have very different histories and very different languages and very different uh, kind of traditions? No, because Native Americans is more category that we put on them. Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> but but as they would have known themselves back in the day. Uh-huh. They wouldn't have necessarily, I mean, some may have descended from similar bloodlines, but yeah. but some would have been a very distinct bloodline. Sure, okay. Um, what we are talking about is an ethnic group here that no matter the tribal distinctions, they all still get to claim a certain ethnic bloodline called Kurdish. Kurdish, got it, okay. And that, that reality exists among Arabs, it exists among other groups okay. as well. And so you were, after 9-11, you just felt there was a way to step in yeah. You became a weapon for Christianity towards Muslims. And and I think for I don't think it's too small to say became a weapon for the American flag as well. Mm. For the American government. I think somehow we were all wrapped in that flag. Those got tied very tightly yeah. in 2001. To, I agree. To be an evangelical, at least a white evangelical from the south was largely still to be draped in the flag. Yeah. So it becomes it becomes complicated to try and parse those yeah. things out. Would you do it different if you knew now what you knew then? Well, certainly, yes. And I don't look back at my former self or my former community with scorn Good. either. I have in the past, and I think I've there's a place on the other side of scorn and self-righteousness that that is more understanding and empathic. Mm. I know why we did things the way we did. We were we were products of culture. We were products of the very thing we were creating, which was reinforcing who we were, you know? Yeah. So I, I can look at it critically, and I think we're still ra- trapped in similar cycles today. Mm. So I, I want to speak, you might say, prophetically toward it, but not with scorn, not, yeah. not with the kind of self-righteousness that doesn't admit I was a part of it. Mm-hmm. and I'm a product of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an important thing to say. Our success, in as much as we've been successful as an organization, is actually a product of the very thing that I now critique. Mm. So what do I do with that? Right. That's mysterious to deal with. 
So I, I want to honor that, if honor is the right word. Mm -hmm. And let me say it in personal terms. I, for all my, look, I, men are victims of the patriarchy too. Say that. It's not You're only, right. though it is certainly, that women suffer under patriarchal systems, but men suffer under patriarchal systems in as much as we get a warped sense of what it means to be yes. male. Talk about that. I don't know that I've heard anybody talk. I 100% agree with you. I just don't know that I've heard anybody talk about it. Because there's the pressure on men to be in the system as much as you can be held down by the system because of the pressure, as much as I can be held back by the system because I'm not a man. Protect your family. Provide for your family. Lead your family be tough, don't cry, bring home the bacon, bread on the table, like all those things over time start to warp all kinds of strands of manhood or maleness that might otherwise exist uh -huh. in the world. So we, we rightly spend a lot of time talking about trying to l create more equitable society for women um, but I think as we focus on that and as we do that, what also happens concurrently is that we make men more free to mm -hmm. feel. We make men more free to live and express different kinds of different realities for what yeah. it means to be fully man, fully male. And we all rise together. How do we do that? You're raising, in real life, you're raising a daughter and a son. How do we help young men and grown men that feel that, how do we, how do we help? We can all, a lot of people in my life and me foremost, we can probably all do a little bit better about affirming feelings that we each have and maybe give up some of the, the impulse to police other people's feelings. Mm you know, the, the tropes and the stereotypes of the generation before me or two generations before me in manhood or male life would talk a lot about suck it up, buck mm -hmm. up, men don't cry, real men don't, this, that, or the other, which is a kind of, that's that's part of the oppressive patriarchy toward men, that it, it denies things that you know to be true inside you. Mm -hmm. I am saddened by this. Well, deny it. Don't allow it. That is disallowed if you would be a man at this time. Mm -hmm. You would be a man in this culture. You would, you would succeed. To be man, to be male is to dominate, to push through, to be tough, to have thick skin. And there are some extremely crass ways that, that the patriarchy is seeking to defend itself right mm -hmm. now, talking about the feminization of America or the feminization of manhood or even more crass ways that that can be expressed. And... So if, if we want to help, if we're going to do better, I actually think we have to lean into allowing those emotions to come forth. I'll say it in terms of my son. I do best and we thrive together when I affirm whatever he's feeling. Mm. Um, there's still ways to coach and guide and lead through. Not all feelings speak to objective realities that exist objectively right in front of us to be analyzed. Sometimes our feelings get it wrong, but, but we still do well to let those wrong feelings be expressed, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think a lot of us are waking up to that mm. right now.
So while we champion the young women in our lives and try to try to create a more equitable world for the grown women in our lives, I think we're doing that maybe as well as we've ever done it, maybe better than we've ever done it, yeah. but we, we still have a long way to go. I think one of the things that we're at risk of getting wrong is a total denunciation of the male side of our house, yeah. the male yeah. side of our family. Yeah. If, if to raise women up results in a decimation of men or maleness or a, a shaming into exile of maleness, mm -hmm. it, it's just not gonna get us where we need to go. Right. It's not actually going to lead to the world we want for women. Mm -hmm. It's going to lead to the cultural backlash that we saw um, epitomized in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Yes. Where, uh, where men and female supporters of men feel so under attack that they will double down and, and, and it leads to another one of these major culture war kinds of fights. So it feels like in scripture where it talks about um, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Hmm. I would have always told you when I read Left Behind as a 12 year old or whatever, I would have told you those things would have looked like hmm. uh, countries and that hmm. kind of thing. I don't know that we knew that there would be rumors of wars between men and women. That that would because that it does feel like that like when you bring up Brett Kavanaugh, particularly that f even as a as an Annie, that felt like such I felt so torn about who to believe and what to do and well then I have to stand by these but what if this and you know like I felt at war within myself over the bigger story, I just don't know that when I thought about that verse in the nineties that I would have ever dreamed it would be between men and women. Mm. And, and it's interesting that you say that because I, I said earlier that as preemptive love, we exist to end war. And that's precisely the way we see it, that, mm. that if we want to end the big nation state wars, we actually have to give a lot more attention to the, the canaries in the coal mine, mm. which are cable news wars, race yes. wars, the war on drugs, the you know gender wars yeah that, that's the stuff that seems to lead us inexorably toward greater conflict because our political parties align across these things and who we elect into office determines whether we have a more aggressive or a less aggressive approach on this yes. or the other yeah and our brand is sort of tied nationally to which guys in office or which woman maybe one day yeah. <laughs> is in office which then affects how the rest of the world sees us mm -hmm. and relate to us and whether they think they can attack us or take advantage of us or play us or cooperate with us. And so I, having lived through these cycles of violence in various countries, I see a, I just see a line <laughs> that connects from how we talk about each other and relate to each other as men and women, um, black, white, gay, straight, you know, the, the lines that I feel like I can connect now between how this plays out in our neighborhoods in the United States and who gets a bomb dropped in their living room in Iraq or Syria as my neighbor. I just see a, a direct line wow. between those two things. So we want to stop war. And I think it starts at home yeah. with how we relate to each other. Hey friends, just interrupting this show with Jeremy to tell you about some of our sponsors. 
We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we're still most likely not getting all of our essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. So I want to tell you about Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough from food all in their clean, absorbable forms and no shady additives or ingredients that can be more harm to your body than good. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I am absolutely loving taking them every morning. I feel like having something to get your day started like that is really, really helpful. I've been taking them for a couple of weeks, and I think they're great. And also, this is a huge to me. They smell nice. They actually smell like mint when you open the container. And that is so great because so many times I think vitamins stink and these smell great. And so I just absolutely love them. Ritual Essentials for Women is the multivitamin reimagined. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women help fill the gaps in a woman's diet. And their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach. And as I told you, there's a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh so you don't get that fishy aftertaste common in most omega-3s. And I love that you can get Ritual delivered. A subscription is easy to start and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, friends. And right now, Ritual is offering my friends 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Just go to ritual.com slash that sounds fun to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash that sounds fun. Today's show is also brought to us by our friends at Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods is a website that has unique, fun, beautiful things for you, your home, your garden, your office. They have cool and unusual gifts for any occasion, which I think is really fun going into the holiday season to peruse around. If you love unique things, you're probably going to want everything you see. For example, they have pedestals for your pistachios, necklaces made of shattered glass, cheese boards that swivel. Get ready for that. If you've read my book, Remember God, you know that I love inner light yoga here in Nashville. And so actually what we got from Uncommon Goods are some yogi candles, which are really cool. They're named after different positions in yoga and they're hand poured soy candles made in Washington, D.C., handmade. I think they are so beautiful and smell awesome. Uncommon Goods is kind of the website for people who are searching for something truly unique, whether it's for yourself or for a gift. And Uncommon Goods donates a dollar for every purchase and has given more than $2 million to nonprofit organizations like RAIN and the IRC. They support good causes like paid family leave and a fair living wage, which you know really matters to us. They don't sell products made with fur, feather, or leather, and they support small business and local artists. Uncommon Goods wants to help you discover your new favorite thing. So they're offering, my friends, an exclusive deal on your first purchase, you guys. Just go to uncommongoods.com slash that sounds fun to receive $5 off your first purchase. That's uncommongoods.com slash that sounds fun to receive $5 off your first purchase. I think you guys are going to love them. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Now back to the show. you know this about me and our friendship, but I am, I am very committed to being the kind of Annie podcast host, speaker, author, whatever, that likes both men and women a lot and, and may, helps women feel seen and heard, but also 
is a friend to the dudes who are listening. And so the idea that there are ways that we can step in and help men not feel smushed by the patriarchy matters a ton to me. So you're probably going to be answering like 94 text messages over the next six weeks as I like really dig into that in my own heart. Because I want to see men free too. I don't want to just see women free of boundaries. I want to see boundaries that they shouldn't be living under. I want to see them thrive. I want to see women thrive and flourish. And I want to see men thrive and flourish. Yeah. And I, I don't just say that as a man um, in a way that's meant to shore up more for myself. This sort of overturning rocks and looking at the other side of the story is is kind of the essence of how yeah. we do all of our work. Yeah, We've been, as ISIS rose up in 2014, you know, I was on all the cable news shows saying, what you don't understand about ISIS is this whole backstory yeah. and how it how they were oppressed by this, 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 yes. and this. And now that has resulted in this now truly nefarious thing going on committing genocide. So we should be concerned for the Christians. We should be concerned for this group called the Yazidis that no one's heard of. But right. let's not dehumanize the ISIS members themselves because they are also a product of a, yes. an oligarchical kind of system. So... You've said like five words today. I, I've sorry, never heard before. I, 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 are you going to apologize for being smart? Because that is not allowed on the show. Absolutely not. My team tells me I need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, when you were on the show last time, we talked about a little bit about preemptive love so people can go back and listen. But I would just encourage people to be a monthly supporter of preemptive love like I am, where you can be a part of making sure y'all have the ability to go where you're needed to serve the people that are your neighbors there in the Middle East that are my neighbors. I just don't go there yet. And so I just want to tell people that before we talk about your book, I want to make sure people know that there's an option to be a monthly supporter of preemptive love. So um, how many years has preemptive love been going on? Uh, we're moving into like year 12, I think. That's incredible. Okay. You have a new book. It is about time, by the way. Yeah. We got this book. I've, I've been ready for it. Um, how does it feel that it's actually out? What a weird time for it to come out and all this be going mm. down. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, about writing and releasing. It's uh, at once thrilling and like almost a complete non-event in many yes. instances. So, yeah. you know, in, in my case, I sort of put all this, there's a conversation I want to be having. That's yeah. lar largely the conversation we're having now, but but less, the the book is meant to stoke more of a conversation about the philosophical side of things uh -huh. than the, the like nuts and bolts yes. side of things. That's actually what I loved about it is I feel like when I read it, you gave me way more the, the, the philosophical side, way more the high level thinking around love <laughs> and your story. So the context is Iraq. It's growing up evangelical. It's setting out into the world as a missionary. It's it's seeing some of the simplicity of childhood fall away. Mm. It's uh, patriarchal kind of demands and realities causing trauma and pain. And I, I guess I would describe the whole book as an exploration of what happens when our tightly held beliefs about God and country and money and power and manhood and therefore womanhood. Yeah 
who matters, who gets to tell the story, when all those things come crashing into one another and we can't control the outcomes. Yeah. I think that's that's what the book is exploring because it seems like what we're all exploring right now. Right. I mean, I just feel like as you're saying that, A, that is true of this book, but also I think that feels like what I'm thinking about a lot right now between racial reconciliation, men and women, particularly in church and where do they thrive in church, this going on daily in Syria and in the Middle East. It just feels like everywhere there's this opportunity to notice conflict that may not be in my house, but is but is very near to me mm. if I choose to care. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So writing a book is, it's a static piece now. Yeah. It exists as it is. Yeah. And then podcasts like this are the updated day-to-day. Your Instagram is an updated day-to-day. How do they play together? Hmm. Well, there's like three or four typos in the book. So, uh, so that's, three or four. I had uh, another author sitting here yesterday and said... And he had found 17. So so when you go back and read the audio book. That's when you find w- it. When it's too late. Yeah. You're like, oh, man, how did that <laughs> one make it? So there's that. Oh, so it's you reading the audio book, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. But more than just the, the silly typos, um, you know, the cool thing is that I've already grown. I can already look mm-hmm. back at it and go, okay, okay, I can look back at that paragraph or that chapter or that book <laughs> with some objectivity now right. and go, Wow, I'm not even in that same place anymore. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you're there on the shelf yeah. to have captured those years and That's that right. moment. But I'm moving on. Like I'm still growing. Yeah. And I'm not here to defend the book. I'm I'm here to keep growing. Yeah. You know? So it's been cool. It's been beautiful to like I wrote my way to freedom in some Isn't ways. Is that what it says in Hamilton? Oh, I is wrote it? my way out. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we just saw it uh, two or three weeks ago in New York City. For <gasps> I just- wish you had told me. You know we have a, f- a friend of the pod who's on the show. No. Well, he's a friend of my real life. I'm just going to make him a friend of the pod soon. Gregory Trico. He's so good. He's Aaron Burr. Did you love it? Um, uh, hello. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We had the most amazing seats for Jessica's 40th birthday. How? Did y'all have a... A call in, or did you just get them? No, you I have just, a friend. No, no, I just pony up. Yeah. <laughs> so we took are the y'all kids. Forty. I just turned forty. She okay. just turned forty. Yep. Okay. And y'all took the kids. All four of you took got to the go. kids like four or five rows back, front and center. Oh. It was insane. It's yeah. I'm sad I didn't. We could have. Next time you go, we'll get you to meet Trico. He's just the best. So cool. Yes. And at the end, he um, he writes his way out of the Bahamas. You know. Um, so that's what you feel like you did with love anyway. Yeah is you just m- managed to write your way. I feel that a little bit about Remember God, that mm. I had to write it to get to the other side of mm. it. There would have been no other way for me to heal and get to the other side of it if I didn't write it. Yeah. And so, but I also think that as a person who has read Love Anyway and also lives real life with you, I also think having Love Anyway on my shelf and for our friends who are getting it today, I think this is a slow experience of Jeremy Courtney and Jessica Courtney and preemptive love. Whereas everything else is moves really fast. Mm. And this is a nice, like get to know deeper dive 
so that when I'm reading this and I'm watching what's going on online that you're teaching me, I'm going, oh, yeah, I know why Jeremy cares about that because now I can back up the story. Maybe you can interact with this because it's been, one of the things that's been interesting is Instagram messages or text messages where someone's like, bro, this this book is wrecking me or, you know, someone's <laughs> like, you know, you get the like tears emojis on yeah, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this is ruining me in all the best ways. And I'm like, yeah, but what page are you on? Right. Because I know what's coming next and you yeah, don't. Yeah. And maybe you can interact with this a little bit because I don't know how deep we want to go into it, but there are some twists right. and turns. And I just wonder, I'm going to turn the interview on you. Okay. How do you remember experiencing... Okay, here, let me put it this way. One of my fears in the book is that I'll be like, I'll be your guy. Until? Until a certain point in the book. And then suddenly we're all left wondering, can I take this next step? Can we take this next step together? Do you remember? Yes, yes, yes. Feeling any of that? No, I'm just trying to think about how to respond without being a, without a spoiler alert. I think uh, you as the author are probably over feeling that you're going to lose friends because of those places. I think my guess would be is that anyone who I think this is where the Internet will help you and where having social media and people continue to know you will help you, not the rest of us. I don't think you'll lose people and one. I don't think people are going to wonder as much as you think they're going to. Um because I think I think in 2019, with as much access as readers have to authors now, we for the 18 reasons we could list that that's challenging for us as authors, one of the big benefits is there's a lot more grace for us to be different and to change and to grow hmm. because they are seeing us every day. Hmm. They recognize that books were written six months to a year before they're reading them. They are recognizing that we're telling things in our books that they would have never known another way. I mean, I have two whole chapters in my new book about something that's happened in my life that no one knows at all except my real life friends. And because I don't know how to talk about it yet, <laughs> but I can write about it today. Yeah. It's safer. Yeah. Because you can control how the words come tumbling out. That's and right. Edit them. And-, and I think that will be what people will feel as they read love anyway, is they will be on your team and then they will feel you change and they will stay on your team. That's my guess. That's I, it didn't change me. Towards you. Does that feel true? I mean, have you had people go like, I was with you until page 218? It's been interesting because we're out on tour right now, um, touring behind the book and a new film. And so it's been lots of live events night after night. And Are you on a bus? No. Oh, you're missing it. Well, I mean, maybe next tour will be a little bit bigger. Yeah, let's wrap a bus. Yeah. We need to tour. Well, here's what we need to do. You and I need to tour together. Okay. Then you can bring you can bring the homies out, okay. and then like we can amp it up a level. Oh, done! Wrap a bus with our faces. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna make some calls today. Preemptive love. We're going on tour. Uh, so night after night, you're interacting with people. Well, it it comes back to sort of the start of our conversation about the way we categorize each other and relate to each other. I, I do think I think you're right. I think I am overthinking it. I think you're right that this is a certain kind of neurosis or feel fear that I'm still kind of groping my way through as I try to come clean or tell the truth about what it has been like to be at war. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, like I said earlier, some of our success was built on the wings or the realities of things that I no longer fully espouse. Right. But just because I've moved on doesn't mean 
everyone else who supports us or wants to be a part of the community has moved on. Right. And just because I've moved on doesn't mean I'm aiming to reject anyone That's else. Right. But so much of how we organize each other is by way of rejection. Yeah. I'm this, I'm not that. Yeah. That we expect to get rejected yeah. by others. And I think that's part of what this feels like an experiment yeah. in is I yeah. wonder, I wonder what I can say. I wonder how truthful I can be. Yeah. I wonder how many different kinds of people we can keep stuffing into this community that we call preemptive love or love yeah. anyway. You know, like right. how many people are willing to keep coming together to love anyway if we all keep experimenting together with a deeper level of truth telling? I wonder if what you're leading us toward is permission for people to change as they grow. I hope so. There have to be more of us that say to people, especially faith people, we are all in on Jesus. He is the spine. He is our backbone. This is something Beth Moore said years ago that has just resonated with me so much where she said, you got to know what's the spine and what you got to know what's the backbone and you got to know what are the ribs. And remember that ribs can be broken and ribs can be healed. And there are things that are ribs, but what we have to stay true and what we all do have to agree on is the backbone. And, and that has just always stuck with me, particularly as I've grown and changed and gone like, man, there were things that I thought were backbone things in 2004 yeah. that probably aren't. But in a way I can say yes to all that, but there's a contrarian in me that wants to say, like yeah, but but that's still a sort of self-sorting, self-selection that prevents us from knowing well how to negotiate with people who see a different backbone. Isn't, isn't that what is really at issue right now, mm. is a debate over what is central? Yes, that's what it feels like on, the, on Twitter. But also, in our faith understanding, isn't there absolute truth? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm asking different questions than just the faith version of this same, conversation. Same, same, same. Yes, okay. Then if we take this outside of the faith version of this conversation, so if we're not talking about Jesus, I am with you that, that we are missing out on what is the backbone of being a human <laughs> and what matters most. And one of the things I think you model incredibly well, for example, I just saw on your Instagram that you're friends now with Kristen Bell. Excuse you. You get to be friends with Kristen Bell. Don't, don't sit quietly because you put it on your Instagram. We saw it. But you have friends all over the place, right, that are, which, by the way, when you were with Kristen Bell, were you on Armchair Expert? Mm-mm. Oh, too bad. No, you're still the biggest podcast I've ever Get done. out of here. <laughs> um, you just are able to make friends with everyone. And so you're, it's interesting to me that, that, that your question about rejection connected to your book feels so opposite of what it looks like on the outside because there are people from your actual neighbors in Iraq to Hollywood celebrities to professional sports players, sports players, athletes, <laughs> the sports ball <laughs> to professional athletes to, I mean, there isn't a group of people that you don't have a friend in. So you've decided your backbone is love. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely to that. Is Kristen Bell awesome? But she's, she's amazing. I knew it. Uh, but also, I don't, I don't know how to say it. Hopefully the book says it. But 
there are there my experience of the world is one of feeling displaced. The book is dedicated to all for all who are displaced. Yeah. It's a it's a story of displacement. And it's a bit of a metaphor and as much as we've been going through this global refugee crisis, but but it's not just about the Syrians getting driven out of their homes in northeast Syria right now. It's it's about those of us who feel displaced from our families, from our faith, from the church, the womb that gave us birth. Mm-hmm. And what I think is at issue and what a lot of us are groping for and trying to figure out is where will I belong again? Will I ever belong again? Will, will there ever be a sense of surety in the world the way that womb once felt so sure and safe? And I don't think so. Do yeah, you think so? Yeah. Yeah. I Wow. I don't know that anyone's ever said it quite that you just said it. And that's interesting. Maybe not. I don't think there so. there's an idealist in me that wants to say, yeah, we just have to go make that new community. But it's a community built on here, we here, know too much, Jeremy. Here's what we're exploring. Here's what I'm leading and trying to explore is can we feel at home together by building a new community based on doubt, mm. not based on certainty. Mm-hmm. So we're touring right now with our friends, The Brilliance. Yeah. And every night they lead out our shows in salons and you know coffee shops and living rooms around the U.S. They lead out and, and they sing... Give me doubt that I might see my neighbor as myself. And it's been so profound for me every night to be reminded that my certainty actually obstructs my view of my neighbor. Mm. And it's doubt, or what many of us grew up calling humility, but it's doubt Mm -hmm. on a level. It's the willingness to confess, I don't have it all figured out, that might allow us to see our neighbor as ourself. So I think that's what we're reaching for. Can we build a new belonging based on humility? If we build a new belonging, will it feel safe like a womb, though? I don't don't know. know. I don't know either. I don't either. I am with you that I think we can build something I have come to terms with. I will never feel that again. And I will never feel the safety of of the innocence of a church being what I was when I was 16. Yeah. And so, yeah. but I only think a, a friend of mine who's a pastor named Jason said one time, and I've hung on to it for so long. He says, you know, in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And he said, one time he said, I think they get to be called children of God because when you actually make peace, you leave every camp. And so God says, if you've left all your camps, I'll call you mine. But my experience, okay, it feels like I'm on the way there. It doesn't feel like I'm fully there yet. But maybe back to your point about having friends everywhere, so to speak, is there is a safety in a bigger belonging. Uh huh. There, there's a safety in no longer aligning in us versus them terms. There's there's a safety in being known for love, as you said, that makes me feel at home everywhere. Yes. 
Whereas in previous overwrought seasons of my life, when I was, you know, over identifying with one thing or another, one group or another, those were actually seasons of great insecurity. Mm. And I, I now feel like I belong in a deeper, safer yeah. way because because I see a common thread in everyone. I see a common humanity. I, like I never doubt that I can find common ground wherever I am. I, I've been saying it this way to a couple on a couple of tour stops. I've started saying, "Look, you, I, I could define the first part of my life as everyone is wrong." Mm. That that was the evangelicalism that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Everyone is wrong, and that's how I wore it with my particular brand of Calvinistic Apostle Paul wannabe machismo. Like everyone's wrong. Enneagram three stuff. Uh, <laughs> Enneagram eight. Oh, that's right. You're an eight. I forget. You're an eight. That's right. Yeah. Challenge everything. Yes. Sort of dominate and conquer. Yeah. Um, Ian Cron describes it as a the the flame. The eight is the flame. And people can either like cozy up to your flame and warm themselves mm-hmm. by your heat, or if you don't have a good hearth around you as an eight, you can burn the city to the ground. Oh, wow. And I had a burn the city to the ground sort of self-righteousness. So in that era of my life, everyone was wrong, mm. except me, mm-hmm. of course. Now I would say I'm in a, a way of living that I would describe as everyone is right. Mm. I, I see the rightness. I see a rightness. I can yeah. find a truth, a common thread yeah. in everyone. Of course you believe that. Yes. Given how you were raised, the right. news inputs you took in, your cultural you know, setting, of mm-hmm. course you believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I can see why you believe that. You're right, yeah. given all that. Yes. You know? And that's led me to a less combative way of being in the world, mm-hmm. which means I can be and belong yeah. in a deeper way than I ever could before. Yeah. Uh, this is a compliment I'd like to give you. I have never known you to be self-righteous, but what I do experience of you is the scar of a man who was self-righteous mm. in that I can tell you you have fought for the maturity and the growth and the man that you are that is not self-righteous. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I've never known you like that, but I, but when you say that, I go, oh, there is a scar there yeah. of a man who chooses not to be the way he was. For sure. I think that, so that's a that's a compliment. I think, that I, I would hope that there would, people would go, hey, Annie, I see some scars in you that you've grown past because of who you are. But I just think that, and the invitation to belong everywhere, that is just what we should offer people, <laughs> that they can belong with us. Going back to the book a little bit, um, I think... There are some passages in the book that I wrote early on in the process uh-huh. that that's, that wound you're referencing wasn't yet healed. Mm. And so I, I can look at a few lines. I think I even came back in the editing process in the final days and caught a few. And I was like, you know what? I think, I can, I think, I, I think I'm healed on that now. Yeah. I think I can say it differently. Yeah. But I think a, a few still made it through that were like a year or two old. Mm-hmm. And I look at them now and I understand them and I have grace yeah. For the fact that that wound was still an open wound. Sure. But it's not open in the same way anymore. Yeah. It feels more healed. And so, however you put it, that that guy that used to be that way, I actually, I, I can look at that guy with great gratitude now, mm-hmm. actually, because that guy carried this guy. That's right. 
on his shoulders or yeah. in his womb, so to speak. Like yes, yes, yes. that guy gave birth to me. Yes. And and you are giving birth to, to something. Yes, that's exactly right. And so I feel like at a much more sort of integrated place, not not mad at old Jeremy. Yeah. Not berating or or ashamed. Yeah. Yeah, I do some things differently, but that's what growth is about. Right. And and I I thank that guy and I thank that community. Yeah. For launching me out into the world. It's one of the, it's something people who are listening have heard me say multiple times. It, it's one of the reasons I'm a little bothered when people lose a lot of weight and they hold up their old jeans hmm. and then drop them and go like, here I am now. And you kind of go like, hey, he was doing the best he could. Like that guy on that day, he wouldn't have shamed you. Mm. Don't shame him, you know, mm. like, and so you're doing a different version of that, modeling that for us. And that I think that is one of the true signs of a person of faith in growth toward Christ likeness. Honestly, when you can go, I made mistakes back there. I was a different person back there, but I will not shame them today because tomorrow this Annie won't be, there are things I've done today that I won't do tomorrow, you know? And so there, I, I think you model that really beautifully, of uh, especially in love anyway, of accepting, being truthful about who you were and who you are, but, but being kind to him as well. Hmm. So, because you're right. I mean, I like that idea of we're always birthing another version of us. So honor, honor your father and mother a little bit, right? Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Shout out to my editors too, who were like, yeah, I think you might want to. That's right. That's right. You may have some. When you uh, when you speak harshly about yourself in this way, you're speaking harshly about your readers who are still in this place. Mm. And it, that was a real eye opening. Thank you, Christine Anderson. That was a real like. Whoa. Yeah. No, I, I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak that over friends and readers. I just That's thought right. I was speaking it over myself. That's right. Okay. No, I get that now, and it was very very healing. Self-shaming affects everyone around you mm. because it makes them wonder whether they should be shaming themselves too. Mm. Wow. And so you, you've done a beautiful thing in the book, but also today for us to remind us like, don't do that. It ain't worth it. Mm. Okay. Well, Jeremy, just for a pure, you're on tour and we have a time limit. We're going to have to cut this one. I could, we could do this for two more hours. Do you know what amazes me about you is when we sit together you feel you are a dear friend to me. And yet I bet every single person, I bet Kristen Bell feels that too. And I bet every person you get to sit with, you make us all feel like we're so valued by you. So I just appreciate that about you. You're a good friend. So Love Anyway is out. People should grab that, preemptivelove.org, where they can read all about the crisis in Syria. They can be a part of that directly. They can also be monthly donors. How long are you out on tour? Oh, we're still adding dates. It's been Great. so fun and so successful and people are, you know, wanting to join up. We've purposely kept it to kind of small salon style cup uh -huh. shop shows. So yeah, we're we're still adding. We'll probably probably be out into mid December, I think. Oh great. Point. Okay. And then probably pick it up again in the spring. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So where can people learn all that? Loveanyway.com. Okay. Has the book. The tour, loveanyway.com slash tour slash book slash film. New yes. The film is part of the tour. Yes. Um, but it's all available online. We've had So someone in Wichita is like, wants you to come to their coffee shop. Can Is there a way to 
do all that too to add a date? There's a way to reach out and okay. we're entertaining a few options still. Um, but as, as meaningful perhaps, we created this film to be a tool to help provoke important conversations in and among us. How can we heal all that's tearing us apart? 30 minute film, super easy. Plop it down in front of your small group, your church, your you know, family, and it just sits there on a screen in front of you and helps get the conversation started. Because a lot of us care about this stuff, but we don't know how to get the conversation started. Yeah. So we made this tool so that you didn't have to be the awkward one to ask some of the hard questions. And you can interact with a objective third party kind of set of information or provoking thoughts. So we've had 900 screenings oh sign up across 35 countries across ah, the world. The world is hungry, hungry for this conversation. How can we heal all this tearing us apart? Yeah. It's not an American phenomenon. It's not a, it's not a Middle Eastern thing. Yeah. We are all going through the, the fracturing and the birth pains trying to see what is emerging yeah. right now as yeah. the, the maps that we inherited don't seem to match the terrain beneath our feet anymore. And so we made this as a tool, a gift. It's all free, loveanyway.com slash film, and uh, you can screen it wherever you want to. We'd love it if you let us know if you do that, but it's available to anyone just to get the conversation started. Thank you. That was very generous of y'all. Okay, well, the last question we always ask, because the show is called That Sounds Fun, Jeremy Courtney. Tell me what y'all do for fun. Oh, man. Well, right now. <laughs> what a left turn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on on tour right now, I'll tell you that like hanging out with people after the show is fun. Yeah. You've got that energy, you know. Yeah. Um, so love love those conversations, love going deep, love playing the role of friend or shoulder to cry on and selfies and all that kind of stuff is all fun. Uh, as a family, we, you know, we're, we vacillate between like, alone time yeah. like it's fun for us to all go into our own cave and read yeah, a book or yeah. whatever but it's also fun to you know get a pizza and watch a movie together. where are y'all basing when you're in the u.s for a couple months uh so i'm on the road almost the entire time that we're here like all yeah. but all but a few days literally i'm just oh on the road the entire time jess and the kids are in atlanta for part of this season and then kind of out of houston for the other part okay and then they're on the road with me for a couple of as events much as, possible. as well. Yeah. Right, will they be back here with you? Nashville, uh-huh. where we are now. I don't know if we oh. make it back to Nashville together. That's sad. But you, I like her. you come hang out with us somewhere on the road. I may need to, just because I like to see your wife she's when amazing. she's on this side of the world. Um, well, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for making time. Thanks for making us smarter and more yeah. thoughtful. I'm really grateful. Oh, friends, don't you love him? Every time he's on the show, I feel like I learn so much and grow so much. And I hope you will step in and be a part of what Preemptive Love is doing on this planet to help end war. And make sure you grab a copy of Jeremy's book, Love Anyway. It is a favorite. I've really, really enjoyed reading it. There's so much you learn about him and his story and his wife and his family. So I think you'll really enjoy it. If you need anything else from me, I'm embarrassingly easy to find. You know it. Annie F. Downs, F as in falafel, because that's one of my very favorite things to eat when I'm in the Middle East. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out and do something that sounds fun to you, and I will do the same. And we'll see you back here on Thursday with my friend, y'all are going to love her, Jordan Dooley. Jordan Dooley.